from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest today is Dr. Camilla Valenta. She's a part-time instructor in the Department of Global Studies at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She's an expert in ethnic conflict, war, extremist ideology, a lot of the things that weigh heavily on the minds of those who look out at the world and the state that it's in. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Our host, as always, is Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley JCC. Welcome, Rabbi. Good morning. Good morning, Adrian, and good morning, Camilla. Thank morning. you so very much for joining us from Charlotte for another conversation with the rabbi. Uh, your background, as uh, we were chatting a little bit earlier, is a, s- a little bit similar to mine because we're both European. And as uh, you know, European living in America, being both of us immigrants, we sometimes bring uh, a different outlook and a different understanding of uh, um, of what happens in America, what happens in the world. And so I'm so excited to uh, that you uh, joined us for this conversation with the rabbi. Um, please tell us uh, uh, where you're from and, and, you know, let's go from there. Yes, thank you so much uh, uh, for having me. It is a, certainly a pleasure to be able to be here and discuss the current and important political issues today. Um, I am originally from the Czech Republic, from Prague. I was born and raised there uh, during the communist times. So definitely since my childhood, uh, you know, politics has been a part of it. And I have experienced political extremism uh, firsthand. Um, I was uh, 17 years old when uh, there was the the peaceful, in in our country, peaceful transition uh, to uh, a democratic system when the fall of, uh, you know, uh, there was a fall of the Berlin Wall, fall of the Soviet Union, very dramatic events. And I had uh, the the privilege uh, uh, to be able to participate in some of the uh, resistance uh, movement and and meetings and demonstrations that took place in in Prague as a a very young person. So definitely, uh, you know, politics is something that has left impression on me. And uh, it it is a a field that um, I decided to study study later on. Uh, I've lived in America for the past uh, 25 years or so, so so a while. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, I always bring uh, something here uh, from, uh, you know, from my country of origin and, and my my personal experience. So so these, these issues are, of course, close to my heart, not just because I studied them, but because I experienced uh, a lot of those things, uh, you know, growing up in communism and and all the uh, all the experiences of living in a non-democratic society and then transitioning to to democracy dr valenta one of the things that seems common in the general public conversation around ethnic conflict sectarianism these kinds of movements there's there's sometimes a tendency to use language that makes it sound as if these things have been there forever, that this is a thousand years of age-old conflict between people, where whichever part of the world this mm-hmm. rhetoric gets to be talking about. I imagine you would want to nuance that view a little bit. Is is the kind of uh, movement, the extremist movements we see today, 
Is that is that an accurate portrayal? Have they always been this way and it's just now becoming more of a problem or what's going on? They have uh, they have always been there in some form. I mean, ever since humanity has been humanity, there have been wars and there have been conflicts. But um, uh, the way it's manifested today is, of course, uh, different because people used to have different allegiances. People used to have allegiances to their towns, to their cities, to their kings. It's not the same uh, uh, thing today. Um, and especially in the globalized uh, world, so many of the movements became um, internationalized. Um, uh, and, and, you know, especially the jihadist movement and also the white uh, extremist uh, movement, uh, the right wing extremism became very internationalized only in the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, you know, when you think uh, jihadism, uh, the uh, the extreme Islamist movement, uh, that is new because, let's say, you know, uh, 100 years ago, for example, a Muslim in Pakistan would not think um, he had much in common uh, with a Muslim in Morocco, right? There, there was a vast difference of, of countries. There was no, you know, not much of a common bond. They did not think that just being Muslim was something that would tie them together enough to to fight or to uh, to engage in some kind of action and now we have these extremists from different countries different ethnicities different parts of the world and and the only thing that connects them is that there are extreme Muslim extremists um, and and it doesn't matter to them or where they are from and this certainly could not have been uh, achieved this connection without the technology and the globalized movement that we have now um, with respect to to white supremacy um, and to the right um, extreme uh, to, to to the right wing extremism, that has always been uh, more nationalized than, for example, left wing extremism, because you know you know communism uh, traditionally was an international movement. Anybody was invited and and could be a communist, right? And and you saw um, communist countries popping up in different parts of the world. But white extremism was always uh, nationalized, like not everybody could be a German Nazi. But uh, that has changed in the past uh, 10 or 20 years when we see white extremists, uh, white supremacists connecting from different countries. And we've seen that, you know, for example, the shooter in, in Christchurch in New Zealand was inspired uh, by uh, by the Yugoslav conflict, by the things that, that happened there. And then the shooter in um, El Paso, uh, the, the Walmart shooter, was again inspired and, and cited in his manifesto the person from, from New Zealand. So we see the connection of uh, white supremacist a white supremacists around and across the world across borders and that's definitely something that's very new and didn't used to be before it's, it's fascinating uh, just listening to to the connections that you're making and and this topic is a very very interesting topic and as uh, we were discussing a little bit previously you know we were saying that these extremist group don't see themselves as being extremist you know, they often see themselves as being, I'm right, and everybody that is not like me, they're just wrong. And so are we then doomed who continue uh, fighting? Or is there a possibility that some of these groups uh, will, at a certain point, realize that they can gain so much more by giving up a armed struggle or terrorism or extremist uh, acts and by joining a 
conversation and, and, and trying to achieve their goals in other means? Well, there is certainly a hope at the um, individual level. And we've seen many cases, uh, probably not enough cases, but we've certainly seen some cases where people uh, joined a radical movement and then they de-radicalized and were sort of converted back to um, uh, to being peacemakers. Um, uh, you know, there is uh, there are examples of uh, of Muslims um, that that have uh, converted, uh, joined a jihadist movement, and then um, you know now work for peace. So, so for individual people, there is certainly a hope. But um, of course, uh, the, the definition of an extremist is that uh, he or she. Uh, does not want to engage in, in dialogue, that they are self-righteous, that they think that their way is is the right way. Um, they always think that their actions are just justified. It's uh, usually because uh, they have uh, demonized the the enemy, uh, and they think that uh, they think that they are fighting for um, you know greater uh, greater goal. It gives them a sense of identity. It gives them a sense of uh, purpose in life. And um, um, so, so if they find something else then that gives them a, a sense of uh, purpose, then they can uh, de-radicalize, and when they're or when they are confronted with other ideas. But it's uh, of course it's not an easy process, and I, I think it can be achieved at the individual level. Not so sure with a whole group. No, I don't think you can convert ISIS uh, right. as a group or Al Qaeda. Is um, is religion a factor? that usually can be beneficial in, in bridging conflict or is religion doomed to be a victim of extremism? Uh, well, from what I've observed, every religion uh, or at least every major religion has had an extremist movement. Uh, there are extremist uh, movements uh, within Islam, of course, even within different factions of Islam. There are uh, extremist movements within different factions of Christianity. There have been extremist movements in Israel within the Jewish religion. So so I think, and, and of course, there are secular uh, atheist extremists, right? The, the, the communists that are by definition extremists. There's Buddhists. Uh, you know, a lot of Westerners think that, you know, Buddhism is inherently peaceful. And, and you know, it, it can be, it can be very peaceful. But, you know, if you look at the conflict in Sri Lanka for 30 years, when, you know, they were fighting each other with uh, uh, machetes that, that, you know, was, was not peaceful at all. So, uh, so I think every religion or non-religion is prone to extremism. Uh, but, um, uh, Religion, of course, has a, has a great potential in, in bringing people together, but it has to be the right kind of religion. It has to be the religion that is, um, you know, does not define the boundaries of us versus them. Uh, it does not define our who are our friends and who are enemies, uh, right? It's not divisive, but it's uh, it's more embracing. And, and I think if you go like deeply into uh, most of the religious traditions there there are ways um, there are things that you can find that uh, kind of teach people how to treat the other uh, person right uh, so so it's more going into depth as opposed to succumbing to these um, uh, to this cultural uh, and ethnicized version of religion that uh, uh, tends to pit people against each other 
Yeah, it's fascinating, but let me push back a little bit because as a rabbi, and I'm very familiar with my religion, <laughs> and I'm also familiar with the, you know other religions. You know, having lived among, uh, you know, having lived most of my life not in Israel, so I've lived among people of all kinds of religions, and I'm very much involved in interfaith dialogue. And so it's very interesting what you're saying because on the one hand, it seems that you're saying that most religion or most of the religion that you mentioned uh, do have the potential of extremism as we have seen historically. And, but then at the other end, you also mentioned that these religions, if we dig deep down, we can find um, ways how to use religion in a positive way. And so my question is, is it something that from your uh, studies and your research, is it something that comes from the religion or is it something that we superimpose on the religion? Well, I think definitely there there is a great potential within the religion. and um, But it takes effort because religion has been used and misused and abused so many times and there is history of uh, of violence and there is definitely a, a history within like i said within pretty much every religious tradition to to kill in the name of of that religion or of god even which uh, totally does not make sense so so i think when we live in a perf in a particular cultural and historical context that it does take an effort to to put these things aside and to to really look okay what is the faith about and to look at religion not just um, uh, kind of as a label to divide people but as an act of personal faith um, and to see in each person you know a, a potentially uh, a brother, a, a friend, uh, that's definitely something that is, you know, common to, to all the Abrahamic religions um, and, and that can be, it can be found and, and used. But because there is already the history um, and, and so many religions have been ethnicized and, uh, um, you know, used to uh, divide people, um, it does take an effort, and it it's going to take an effort on the part of the of the clergy, the uh, you know the religious elite, and also the common people. So I think it has to be. It cannot just be a top down approach, but it has to be both at both levels um, to to achieve that. What kind of extremism do you, do we see on the rise in Europe and in America, and are those a similar extremism? Uh, yes, uh, we see th there is a similarity and there is a connection. Now with the internet, these movements go to the same websites. And uh, I think white supremacy um, is the uh, the number one um, threat right now in Europe and in America, and also uh, jihadism. Uh, but I think more, and I think the statistics show that more attacks are, are committed by white supremacy uh, groups than by uh, jihadist groups. And uh, the 
the problem is that we oftentimes see, especially the jihadist groups, that as an ideology that's that's imported. We 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 look at immigrants and and think that they are bringing it here, when in fact the reality is that most jihadists are homegrown, and that's uh, a true both for America and also for Western Europe. They usually get recruited through uh, from marginalized communities that were not properly integrated uh, people who have experienced, um, you know, poverty, who have, were not accepted in the society, who were maybe bullied for their uh, ethnic origins, for their faith, whatever. And, and those are the, the breeding grounds for, uh, for future jihadism. And white uh, supremacy, again, um, usually comes from, uh, you know, usually young people who lack any kind of purpose, who, who lack guidance, and these groups give them a sense of importance. Um, they also fear, uh, also fear is a, is a great motivating factor. They fear the others, they fear the immigrants, they fear the people who are different. Sometimes, somehow they think that their race is, uh, uh, is declining and, and all of those things. So, so I think fear, marginalizations, uh, um, and, uh, you know, not acceptance and uh, are the core um, uh, causes of, uh, of this rise. Let's zoom out in our magnification just a little bit for a minute to situate this in a broader context, because it strikes me as I'm listening that if we go back to the 14th century, there's a white supremacist movement, although whether the Portuguese would call themselves white or not is obviously, uh, you know, it's anachronistic to say this, but there was a, a, a movement of supremacist superiority spreading out of Europe that used brutal methods to subjugate people who were deemed other and inferior. We didn't call it extremism. We call it empire. Mm -hmm. And as you run that story forward 400 or some years, you get to a, a kind of global consensus, if you will, which is not the same everywhere, but which has enough similarities that now movements that are emerging within it are called extremist. So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is there was a kind of globalization of violence and oppression that we're not talking about when we talk about extremism because we analyze that under the label of empire, colonial expansion, those kinds of things. Deeply problematic, needs to be discussed. But interestingly enough, in the systems created by empire, we now have groups, many of whom have similarities with the dominant power of those areas who are viewing themselves as outside. And now we call those movements extremism. Is this tracking? I'm not sure if I'm, I'm communicating what I'm trying to get at here, but there's this way in which the extremist movements of today or of the last 80 years are, are have emerged within the system that this other supremacist movement created mm -hmm. and are now considered to be the extreme outliers in a system where in many places... And this is probably not true everywhere. In many places, the extremists actually look and sound a lot like the people in power, in government. But yet they feel alienated. Can you, can, you, can you talk a little bit about this idea that white supremacists in America, for example, are in this really interesting position. They use the language of the victim, their, their races being threatened, as you say. And yet, in many ways, they are in a country where there is no more institutional and structural. There's there's more institutional and structural benefits to them in this country than almost anywhere else. And yet, they're they're 
their extremism is founded on a story mm-hmm. about their marginalization. So somehow, and this is an impossible question, I apologize, but somehow between these two levels of the world we inherited from empire and where we are now, extremism emerges in that dynamic somehow. Do you have thoughts about this? Well, yeah, um, of course, white supremacy goes through the the last thousands of thousands of years of history, uh, and of course, our our standard has changed, and and it's changing. We're evolving, right? And what was okay to say in the 14th century about you know different races, minorities, other religions, or about women, it's just not okay to to say now. We've we've evolved and and we've moved, and um, but I think. The, the interpretation, so so there's one thing is the, the history itself, and then um, the other thing is the interpretation of history that people are taught in, in schools. And um, if the, you know, these conquests, um, I, I think over the years have been romanticized um, uh, as, uh, as you know, the, the great discovery of America and conquest and the bringing of, uh, you know, civilization and Christianity and all, all of these things. We kind of need to reinterpret history if we want to achieve uh, uh, an equality of, of, of races, right? Um, we uh, we have somehow forgotten that in the beginnings of Christianity, there there, there was a, a it was a. a a multiracial, multicultural movement, right? Some of the founding philosophers, like Saint Augustine, was was black. That that is not something that was taught for many years, right? Uh, uh, even the apostles were were Middle Eastern of various uh, uh, skin tones, uh, uh, so, so to say, and and, and let's, culture. Let's not forget that Jesus of Nazareth was a an olive or dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew, not the yes. white guy who looks like he belongs in Leonard Skinner that you see in most of the pictures. Yes, <laughs> right? yes, and somehow... Always blame the Jew. <laughs> <laughs> somehow it's, uh, um, you know, it was forgotten because, uh, you know, as Christianity kind of um, um, established itself in different cultures, it, it comes natural that people uh, depict these, these uh, you know, persons that are important to them um, to make them look similar to them, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, um, uh, you know, even the depictions of Virgin Mary, she always looks and is dressed like the people of the local culture whenever she she appears or she is believed to appear. Um, so there is this uh, this process of acculturation of, of religion, but the the problem is that it's been so um, Eurocentric for so long that we have forgotten that it really is a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, uh, religion, and we don't really look at other races as equal founders of the Western civilization that we value so much, right? We value Western civilization. We, we you know, oftentimes think it's, um, it's superior because of humanism and all of those democracy and all of those things, but, but we forget that other races made a significant contribution and that they are uh, equal uh, with us. And I think we really need to reinterpret history in how it is uh, taught and how it is perceived that this is not, uh, you know, the, the culture of humanism and, and democracy that, that we've uh, we have now that it's not an invention of white people alone. Um, other people made significant contributions, and and we see a lot of that happening now in the United States as as history is being reinterpreted. We need to change the symbols, right? And we need to remove some of the statues that no longer uh, reflect 
our interpretation of history as we try to uh, to improve it now to to bring in more people. But don't we run the risk of making the same mistake just on the flip side? Meaning, uh, uh, Adrian started with the with the with the statement and the assumption that you know. Um, part of the extremism that we find today is the result of imperialism, you know, that mm -hmm. extremism, imperialism of the past, which is true. But then at the same time, we also forget that there was imperialism everywhere, meaning it was maybe called differently. Mm -hmm. um, slavery exists, unfortunately, from from the moment that the two different group identity existed and one uh, conquered the other and took those uh, prisoners as slaves. Uh, slavery was not invented in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, slavery is found even today all over the world in different ways, unfortunately, uh, but it's found all over the world. So also when... You know the, the the Europeans came and conquered um, what became known as the American continent. It's not like the locals, the natives, were sitting around the fire, kumbaya, among <laughs> different tribes. They were killing each other as well, and they were trying to expand their empires. Mm -hmm. So. So how do we make sense of all of this? You know, it seems that history is just repeating itself in just in using more modernized weapons. Well, you know, it's tough and uh, violence has been found in every culture. Uh, I do not. There may be some minor communities that are inherently peaceful but but on the large scale we we see wars um, everywhere so uh, so yeah of course uh, the the native americans fought wars and they they had you know slaves and they tortured people and and all of those things um when the, when the europeans came to, and you know when the europeans came here it seemed to them like their culture was superior than than what they saw here um here in the in the americas but um, I think there's sometimes temptation to make it racial, to think like, oh, because, you know, I think we have this superior culture of humanism. Oh, it's because we are white or it's a, it's a white culture. That, that's not true. And uh, as we see from, you know, so many persons that were in the beginning of uh, the philosophers, the, the founding philosophers of, uh, of European culture, even when we go back to the Greeks and the, the old uh, Romans, they, they were people who were oftentimes multiracial. So we have to, um, uh, I think we still need to value our culture of humanism, of uh, hopefully tolerance and um, you know how we have evolved over the years that um, you know there are certain things just we just don't do we we try not to uh, even that's not true that we we never do it but we try to condemn torture we try to condemn violence we try to um, uh, you know promote e equality um, in, in the western world but 
that's not something that is inherently white or developed by white people. We have to um, uh, appreciate this culture and at the same time recognize the contributions of other races and um, not think, oh, this is just ours, of, of our, you know, white people. It is a, a culture of everybody and for everybody. We kind of need to de-racialize it and de-ethnicize it if, the, if there is such thing to disconnect it from, from race um, and, and recognize that, you know, we got a lot of these ideas from African-Americans who, uh, you know, who, who contributed to it. You find um, Europe to be more or less uh, racial in this sense than America? Um, I think, I think there are similarities, but I think it's manifested differently just by the fact that there is not the same history of slavery and there is not the same presence of, uh, of African Americans in Europe. But, uh, so, so you don't see these clashes as, as much, but I don't think that means that there is no racism. I mean, we certainly see a lot of backlash now against uh, immigrants from, uh, you know, from Syria, from Northern Africa. Um, and um, uh, the society just does not treat them um, equally. Uh, and it's, uh, there are other problems in Europe because um, a lot of the nations are defined kind of in ethnic terms, which always makes it more difficult for other people to uh, to come. Um, I, I've heard, you know, in Germany, there are debates, well, how are we going to integrate the, uh, all of these Syrian refugees? And um, there was an interview with, uh, with a professor, I I don't know his name, but somebody asked him, well, uh, how does a person become German? And he said, well, you know, these are the things that you have to go through to get citizenship. And and the the reporter was pushing, pushing back saying, well, yeah, but how does one really become German? And the professor said, well, there is no such thing as becoming German. You either are German or you're not. There's there's not such, you know, just not, it cannot be done. And, and, and you know, as I listened to that, I thought, well, you know, good luck integrating these one million refugees that uh, Angela Merkel promised to, to integrate. I mean, it's just a lot harder when a nation has been um, defined in ethnic terms. Um, and now in America, it's always meant to be, uh, it was always meant to be much more uh, in terms of civic nationalism, the adherence of a particular, uh, a particular political um, institutions, regardless of where you came from and your origin. Uh, but in reality, in reality, it has been uh, for a long time, a country of uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants um, as the privilege uh, of race and, and religion. And um, it's only reason recently that, that other people are uh, being incorporated as equal, uh, essentially equal, equally being American, right? So, uh, so, so the problems are, are different and, and, but, but I think racism exists in both continents because it's certainly the same, same narrative. Um, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the, the, the real story is so, li so little told and maybe in, uh, classrooms at universities like yours, the ones that I used to teach at, th there are the attempts with a 15-week syllabus or whatever it is to try to get into some of the nuance and, and subtlety of these things and bring together 
sources, uh, both primary and secondary, from multiple fields to try to get a, a, a younger generation of future leaders to understand. Uh, you know, certainly I think of, of somebody like John Marks, my friend, who's a professor of anthropology at your university, University of North Carolina, Charlotte, who has spent his entire life trying to get people to understand that whenever they use the word race, they're probably referring to something that, that they don't understand and doesn't mean what they think it means. And yet we casually do it. We've done it in this in this conversation here as if there's a an, an object out there in the world, a reality that when we say different races we're referring to and and we're not the the science on this is quite clear that there are no human races except as linguistic and cultural categories that uh, as as john said in a recent bbc uh interview which i recommend everybody watch we might link to it here there there is less genetic variation among humans than there is among almost any other species on earth and is highly likely that if you took somebody who looked like you and somebody who looked very, very different from you, mm -hmm. that you would have more in common genetically than two chimpanzees that looked like twins to you. So we don't understand and we don't, but we talk about, I don't mean us, the three of us here, I mean, in general, we all talk about this as if there's a thing called race and, and the race is this and that and the other. At the same time, nationalism, just to bring in another layer here, is is so incredibly interesting and and problematic and little understood and you know going back i'm sure that thinking on this has developed since i was reading this stuff but going back to benedict anderson's early uh intervention in this topic wrote he wrote a book called imagined communities oh, yeah. uh, on the origin and spread of nationalism and his argument there is that nationalism is actually a new world invention that gets exported back to europe at the same time as if you read Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, you see that racist ideas that become racist policies were imported uh, from Europe into America. And the early uh, thinkers and writers, Cotton Mather and folks of that nature, who were creating the justifications for the system of slavery that was already in existence, but they were mm -hmm. providing a religious and a political and an American mm -hmm. kind of explanation for this. There's just so many intertwined things that we really do need to understand because it might make us wake up and go, oh, <laughs> none of this is actually real. We've been living inside of these intersecting stories about ourselves for so long that we started to believe them. Mm -hmm. And that shift that you talked about, from uh, that shift of allegiance... I don't know. I, I, I find myself, I got to be careful because I'll start waxing poetic here and that doesn't help anybody, least of all our listeners who came for you, not me. But you said at the beginning, Dr. Valenta, that there is a an allegiance to certain ideologies and that while there has been war forever, what we now call extremism is people associating themselves with a particular group, a particular ideology, a particular movement. And what if we could shift that allegiance to humanity instead of to the divisions of humanity? I don't now. Now I'm going into the kumbaya direction that that uh, uh, the rabbi's very clear does not <laughs> does not fly here. Do you think this is possible? Do you think people could start to think differently? Well. There's always been changes in uh, in ideology. It's definitely within uh, our reach to to change. I mean. It, Probably not quickly. Uh, there is a lot, uh, a lot of prejudice to be uh, dismantled. But um, you know, when you brought 
brought up the the Portuguese explorers and the missionaries who came to America sort of to to um, to export the the European culture and, and Christianity into America uh, I, I think a lot of people just assume and it's we have it internalized that those were white people right we have it connected to race and this is something that we need to change in our understanding of, of history that not all Uh, Portuguese explorers were of a purely European origin. Uh, a lot of them were of mixed origin, uh, some of them. Um, a lot of the, the Christian missionaries uh, were, again, of a mixed racial ethnic origin, and not to mention that the, the, the first uh, Christians who spread Christianity were Jewish of, uh, of various uh, skin colors, right? Like, like the, the rabbi already pointed out, everything started with, uh, with, with one Jew. Um, so, uh, so we need to, um, we still need to value the culture and, and the progress that we've made, but at the same time, uh, de-ethnicize it as, as I call it, um, to, to disconnect it from, um, uh, from, uh, a particular, uh, racial allegiance to say like, okay, this is, you know, Western humanism and, um, and, and our culture, which we think is superior is the culture of white Europeans. And therefore we are also superior and we kind of have to have to bring it to the others when, uh, when in fact, this is, this is a culture that, that rose from uh, a very, a variety of contributors and uh, we are all, all uh, kind of uh, sharing it now and uh, we are all equal in it. And, Again, it it goes back to education, and and like you, you know, you said we only have so much time in the classroom with the students. There is there is so much that we could teach them, um, and uh, uh, you know, not enough. So so we kind of have to promote it in the classroom, also by by example, to let dialogue happen in the classroom, to to try people to talk about difficult issues um, and uh, be respectful towards each other. So so in my classroom, I, you know, I have limited amount of time uh, and um, and I try to both to teach them the, the subject matter, but also to model what a, a, a conversation or a dialogue looks like among people of different Uh, faith, religions, and um, and backgrounds, uh, you know, especially when, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I have people who are personally connected to the conflict from, you know, with their family being from Palestine or uh, or, or, or being Israelis uh, or Jewish people there. Of course, they have uh, opinions that are more um, kind of stronger because they've had some personal experience with that conflict and, and we still have to find a common ground and, and engage in dialogue. So so I think modeling dialogue is important and, and teaching them and it, it will take time, but I think it is possible to, to change our historical narrative or to adjust it. It seems to me like um, is a balancing act. On the one end, We all have our own family that we prefer over others. So there is the nucleus, you know, you know, or, or, or maybe that we should. <laughs> you know, you can take my kids anytime you want. Anyway, but, <laughs> but, you know, there is the nucleus, you know, the family, and then there is the village, and then there is the city, and then there is the country, and, and then there is the other country. You know, the other families, the, you know, and, uh, 
So I think, and, and that I think it's natural. It's that we feel more comfortable within our own family than with a stranger's family. It is, uh, you know, we feel more comfortable in a country where we know the culture and the language than in a country that we don't know the language nor the culture. And so, and so, and, and so naturally throughout history, these expressions can lead and often lead to, you know, wars and, uh, you know, if you, if you extend the line to the extreme. And on the other end, we're trying also to say, well, we don't want to go to a war with the other. We want to understand that the other is not dissimilar from me. Mm-hmm. Just because they look different, just because they pray different, just because they talk differently, their humanity ultimately is like mine. And so I think it's a balancing act between trying to keep the family, whatever, however we we call the family, which I think it's a normal, natural uh, uh, trait that we all have. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, understanding that just because somebody else doesn't belong to my family, I should still respect their them for their humanity and, and their things. So it's it's a, it's a balancing act. And sometimes when we look at history, uh, we we have failed tremendously uh, in understanding that others are basically a reflection of our humanity as well. And that's maybe why so many of the, you know, we started with a question about religion. So many religions have this ideal about a messianic times mm-hmm. that we hope for a messianic time where nations will uh, live together in peace and harmony. Maybe that's, maybe that was the, the reason why uh, so many religions have this concept of messianic time. Dr. Valenta, why don't you give us your last thoughts on, on these topics that, uh, that we thought? Well, uh, you know, my last one more thought that I have on, on what we could do with respect of this balancing act um, and balancing our identities, which are important to us. We need to have an identity, a sense of belonging to, to a community, to a family, to a, a country, nation, religious group. That, that's very important to us because it gives us a sense of belonging, sense of transcendence, all of these things. But uh, what is important is to keep overlapping identity so that there is not one single identity that overshadows everything because that's when conflict happens and that's when uh, the, the friends and enemies are kind of defined and there are sharp distinctions. So what we really need is to realize that, okay, with this person, I have a common common language, maybe a common cultural background. With another person, I have another uh, a common identity, maybe that, that we're both uh, mothers uh, or parents. With another person, I have, you know, I share 
religion to, together. They they go to the same church place of worship with another person. You know, I share another commonality. So so we each have a, a unique combination of different identities, um, and that's what makes us unique and gives us a sense of belonging. But it's important that there is not one single identity that that it collapses everything to it and it becomes the one overshedding identity that I cannot come, I cannot find anything in common with a person who does not belong to my group. Um, uh, I, I think that's when the problem really starts. So with the balancing, um, I would think that this is important to keep uh, multiple and overlapping identities. And that way you can, you can almost connect with anybody in, in the world, right? You will find something in common. And, and so I, I think that is important, but, but we need identity at the same time, identity really can be a source of uh, a problem and, and conflict. My last question for you is these, these topics on uh, white supremacy, conflict, extremism uh, uh, can often be very heavy and very depressing, and they're serious and need to be dealt with seriously. But there's also some indication of hope. When you look at the future, what what do you see? What what's the what are some of the however filtered and bleak the little shimmering points of light may be? What 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 do you what keeps you going as you teach yet another semester of these same topics? As you as you do the work you do to try to educate others and and change the way people think. What are some of those bright spots in the future for you? Um, I think the students, I really like my students in every class. I can see, you know, bright young people or young people who really want to make the world a better place. I've had... Um, students in my class who want to go out there, who want to be missionaries in different countries, want to learn about other cultures, want to promote peace, maybe want to join the Peace Corps. And, and you know, they're full of ideals and some of their ideals are not entirely realistic, but I'm so, so happy that they have them. So, so I really see a, a lot of potential in my students. And I think if they are taught well uh, from the beginning, I think there is a great, uh, great potential. And uh, uh, sometimes, like you say, it, it is hard and it is depressing because I discuss wars and genocide and all these things. And, and sometimes as I try to uh, uh, finish the semester on some optimistic note, uh, you know, at UNCC, at one, two years ago at the end of semester, we had a mass shooting uh, right at UNCC. Um, another semester, uh, there were the, the Easter bombings in Sri Lanka just towards the, the end of the semester. I was like, I'm, I'm trying to uh, finish the class on a positive note and it just ends so badly. But um, but we kind of have to look beyond that. There is going to be violence for some time. It's it's unfortunate it's not going away. But there are also going to be people who will be peacemakers and who will try to do their part to to make the world a better place. And it's always so uplifting to to be able to talk to these students who are full of ideals, full of hope, and and who really want to uh, want to do that. So so that's uh, that's where I find the uh, the, the hope. Uh, um, you know, in my in my teaching, Dr. Camilla Valenta is an instructor in the Department of Global Studies at the University of North Carolina Charlotte. She's currently teaching two courses: Ethnic Conflict in a Changing World and Extremist Ideologies and the Politics of Terror. Dr. Valenta, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. 
for all of us here at phx.fm. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next conversation with the rabbi.